uh, you guys are here. And uh, tonight I want to go ahead and open us up in prayer. But uh, before I do, I just wanted to remind you and welcome you to our, I guess, I don't know, first annual, semi-annual, quarterly Q&A. I don't know. But um, what we do is, is uh, I know some folks use it, other folks I wish would use it. But we've got these two wonderful boxes up here that look so good. They're not just decorative, I promise you. But that's for any prayer request, praise, or Bible question you might ever have. What I love to do, and I, and I do this, I promise you, uh, if not, you join me tomorrow morning, all right? Monday mornings when I get in, we check in, uh, make sure, you know, we're good to go, and walk in my office, and, you know, say hi to Sharon, I'm Faye, and, and the ladies clean and everything, and then come in here and, and uh, check these boxes to see if there's anything to pray for. And most of the time it's pretty empty, but I still pray anyways, but um, I got a little broader of prayers. I like to have those specific ones, but... If you ever have a Bible question like that or, or prayer or anything like that that you, you, uh, you need, just drop it in there, and, and I'd love to check it and uh, to be able to pray for those things and, and to be thinking about it all. But, uh, but I, I'm grateful that it's there and grateful for the tool. But we have four questions came in, four big ones, all right? So we're going to try to answer all four of them tonight. And if I don't get to some tonight, they'll be the first one on the next one. But also, too, a lot of times with these questions that do get asked is that they will get answered as we preach and teach on our regular services. And that's one great thing I love about expository preaching and preaching through books of the Bible and, and certain studies is that God just naturally takes care of those questions. But I'm grateful for, uh, for questions who have come and, and for folks who are want to, to know some more about what the Lord has. And, um, uh, but anyways, tonight, let's go ahead and let's pray and ask the Lord to help us and to guide our hearts and our minds and that tonight we would just trust in His Word. Uh, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one that's here tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to gather and to sing songs uh, about your goodness and your faithfulness. And Lord, help us to long and look forward to that, that beautiful sweet by and by where we can uh, meet together and meet with you, Lord, and see you face to face. I pray, God, that you would help us tonight, Lord, guard my heart, my mind, my tongue. Lord, help me to, to answer biblically and accurately and, and the best as, as, I, as I know how and can. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to glean some things from some of these different questions and answers. And that ultimately in all these things, that we would be pointed to your word and that we would be filled by you. Well, we love you, we thank you for this time, and we give it over to you now. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, question number one. <laughs> all right, the first question I got in, I'm going to try to start off, not that any of them in any particular order was easier or harder. There's a couple of them that's, you know, not the easiest ones to uh, maybe discuss, I, I'd say that, but, and we'll get to that. But the first one tonight is one that I think is more along the lines of a, a practical question, and I think it's a, a very valid and a good question. Now, the question is this, um, when Jesus told us how to pray by starting with the Lord's Prayer, is this meant for all personal prayers? So turn with me, we're going to do a lot of Bible flipping tonight, so hope you got your Bible flipping fingers, all right? Luke chapter 11 tonight, Luke chapter 11. We're going to start here to answer this question, to look and see um, as Jesus is teaching on a prayer and, and this portion that's going to be giving what many refer to as the Lord's Prayer. For myself personally, on a personal note, when I say the Lord's Prayer or talk about the Lord's Prayer, my first reference is not our Father who art in heaven. It's rather John chapter 17. It's rather what the Lord prays him, uh, to the Father um, for his people, for the church, for the believers, uh, for the world, all those things there in the garden, the night that he is betrayed. And as he's praying, as I believe, according to Scripture, uh, it's a great, as it were, uh, sweating, a great drops of blood and the immense pressure that Jesus is under. But um, what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer is a, a model prayer. And here is one passage of Scripture that is, it is given. It says in, in uh, Luke chapter 11, verse number 1, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, 
when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. I want to stop there for just a moment. This brings such a vivid picture. What we have here is the disciples are gathered around. They're in a certain place. And what is implied here, I believe, is that Jesus had these specific places where he would go for solitude, seclusion, for prayer, to meet with the Father, to pray over these things. And I think it's a great pattern for you and I to have that place and that time, that prayer closet, if you will, as Jesus talks about in other portions of, of Scripture. Uh, but we then find that as he's praying, we don't find it that the disciples necessarily are, but they then look and they say, well, well teach us how to do that, Lord. And, and that phrase is very important. The question is not asked, teach us how to pray, but rather teach us to pray. And I think the, the little difference there in the English is, and in the, the vocabulary there is, is of, worth noting here. If we were to be taught how to pray, then Jesus has to you know, go through the process like we often do with little kids of, well, you've got to be quiet, you've got to close your eyes and fold your hands or that sort of thing. But he doesn't give that. He's going to teach them in the sort of manner and the consistency and the pattern of what prayer is to look like to a degree. He says, and he said unto them, when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I believe it is important for us to know and distinguish here that the Lord's Prayer here that is given here, as well as in Matthew 6, is an example of patterned prayer. Notice the pattern of the prayer. It, it, you've got praise, right? It is clear that uh, our Father who art in heaven, that the kingdom come, that hallowed be thy name. There is a, a reverence in coming to the Lord. There is a, a praise for who God is in the way that it is approached. There is asking for pardon, for forgiveness of sins and things. And, of course, the petition of, that we often consider prayer of just asking God for things. And, uh, now, when we look at this, this model prayer, he does not tell his disciples, pray this prayer every time you pray, or pray this in order to pray the rest of your prayers. But rather, it is the idea that what we find is a pattern for our prayer life. Our prayer life, I believe, is to be private in the way that Jesus is praying here. Uh, there was actually uh, parables, as you can read, and I believe over in, in Matthew that deal with this, or possibly in Luke, forgive me, uh, but where you have the Pharisee and the publican who are both there praying at the same time, and the one is out in the open, is telling God how good he is, and the other one just beats his chest and says, Lord, help me, forgive me, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Right? Have mercy upon me, a sinner. And, and we find here what Jesus is doing is less of a command of Pray this prayer, and it's going, here's a pattern of prayer and the consistency of prayer, a model. If we should model anyone's prayer life, certainly it should be the Lord Jesus. He was consistent in the way that he prayed, consistent in how he approached the Father. He was consistent in making time for prayer. You and I think that we're busy. Jesus was literally taking three and a half years of his life and from sunup to sundown performing miracles and teaching and preaching walking the whole way, not getting in his car or, or coming to sit down in a nice air condition, right? This was something uh, that was tiring. And yet he continued to find his place and his time to go and to meet with the Father. And so the, I would say to answer this question, is this meant for all personal prayers? I believe that the, the pattern is a good thing, but some of the greatest, most powerful prayers that we pray are simply, Lord, help. Would you say that Lord, help follows this pattern? Well, perhaps to a degree, in the sense that if we simply, if our prayer in a 
moment of trouble is just simply, Lord, help. Well, we've done a couple of things, haven't we? We've, we've won. We've addressed the Father as, as Lord. We've addressed it, Him in praise because to be Lord means that you're the sovereign ruler, creator, sustainer, redeemer, all these things that God is. Uh, to ask for help is a, a twofold thing. It is, there's a sense of asking for pardon. Lord, help, because it could be I've just sinned and all I can get out of my groaning and uh, trying to uh, get my confession is, Lord, help me through this sin. Help me through this pain, whatever it might be. And then there is well in that the, the petition, the pardon throughout the whole thing. Now, is this a command? I believe this is what we see, that the Scripture is full of countless records of personal prayers throughout the Old Testament and New Testament alike. Many follow a similar model. All prayer, however, is seeking God to open a door of mercy and grace. If we were to boil prayer down, it's simply just putting our whole life, our problems, our issues, even our praises. It's laying everything at the feet of Christ and, and laying ourselves down upon his mercy and grace for everything. Now, we go on to see here later on in this passage, we read through verse 5 down. It says, and he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? I believe what we find here is that we are to be praying always and for all things, at all times, for all things, through all things, and that we can come confidently to God through Christ. I believe that the command here is, as we come back to answer this question, that when Jesus says this prayer, it is, not necessarily that we are to pray this Lord's Prayer every time we pray or in order to pray, but rather that we follow the pattern of prayer in the life of Christ. And that is continuous. It is expecting or confidence in the Father and in His uh, ability to answer His children who come to Him. It is the uh, mentality and the personalness of which we come and approach the Lord and that we are not just consistently doing it and expecting him to answer prayer, but that we have a humble heart and approach in the way which we do, that we know that he is the God of heaven. So, in short, pray. The only wrong prayer to pray, is, or the only wrong way to pray, is to not pray at all. We are to pray. However, we can get into some issues and some trouble when men start telling, well, in order to have forgiveness of sins, you must go and Say the Lord's Prayer five times and a couple Hail Marys or this, that, and the other. That's where we get into issues. So you'll never have come to me and me go, oh, well, have you been praying the Lord's Prayer lately, right? Maybe that'll help. But no, rather, have you been praying lately? What's your prayer life like? Not did you pray the Lord's Prayer, but rather, are you praying to the Lord at all? And so 
Uh, hopefully that helps out with some of their, our personal prayers. Our personal prayer life is to just simply be that, personally going to the Lord continuously and seeking Him. And certainly this Lord's Prayer, if you will, is a wonderful pattern uh, of what prayer life should be like, especially in light of the light of Christ. Now, question number two, take your Bible and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. This next question is a, a little bit of a, a doozy. It's a tough one for for some folks. The question is this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, why was the punishment so severe when David numbered the people? Now, now if, if you're familiar with this passage, what is about to happen is, and for sake of time tonight, I won't read the entire uh, chapter. Um, it's uh, 30 verses, but I encourage you to read it. Read this account. Read through Chronicles and, and Samuel that, that gives these accounts here. Um, but what we see is that the question is, why was this punishment so severe when David numbered the people? The idea of numbering, David goes and uh, he does a census. And after the census, the Lord is, is angered, it, it says, in that he gives David the option here of, of a couple of things. He says, look, I'll give you, in verse number 10, And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's uh, seers, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David. And said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, uh, just saith the Lord, uh, Choose thee, either three years' famine, or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. Whew. That's a lot, isn't it? 70,000 is a lot of folks to die for what seems to be such a small sin. See, here the census, though, we have to understand the greater picture. The census that was to be done was to be done in a particular way. Uh, the Bible tells us specifically in, I believe, in, uh, over in Leviticus and, and uh, elsewhere, we see um, in the Old Testament when God is giving the law, he gives things very specifically. So he doesn't just tell them, hey, build me a tabernacle and, you know, it just surprise me, right? He gives them every specific detail possible of what it needs to look like, how it's to be made, how it's to be addressed, how it's to be put together, take it, I mean, the whole thing. He does the same thing with with uh, even taking the census. God is a God of order. God is a God of specifics. And he does so for his name's sake, for his glory's sake, and as well so that the people would know that he alone is God. Now, we also find in the census that the Levites were not to be numbered in the army. But if we go back and we read in this chapter, in this account, David includes everybody, right? What David does in the census is that he includes everyone that can hold a sword, basically. What the phrase idea that they can hold a sword means you're, you can be drafted in the army if, if stuff goes bad. Right? The idea is that we're numbering all those who are uh, fighting age. But he numbers those included in that who aren't supposed to be numbered in the army. It is their job to be taking care of the, the household of the Lord, the things of God. And then we also find that when a census took place that alms and offering was to be taken up to the Lord. That does not happen in this case either. Now, some would go and look and say, in chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, verse number 1, it says, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. 
The question could be asked, why then does God punish David and kill 70,000 people in judgment if Satan was behind this whole thing? Wouldn't that be the case? Here, I want to give you what one commentator writes in regards to this whole passage in question. They say David's sin provided the occasion for this decision as we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 through 22. It all started when David took a census. In the ancient world, rulers would take a census either to levy taxes or to draft an army. And the counting of men who drew the sword indicates that David had the latter purpose in mind. Joab warned David that such a census would be sinful, most likely because it reflected a reliance on human strength in the form of a large standing army. The text also tells us that Joab did not include Levi in the census for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 6. The best explanation for this is that David asked Joab to include Levites in the army, even though the law of God expressly ordered Israel to exclude Levites from a military census, Numbers chapter 1. So it seems that David sinned because he was relying on military strength, not on the Lord, and was breaking God's regulations for military eligibility. Now, we would take another step and go, that still seems real severe. And I believe that according to new studies, uh, every two years, Ligonier and some others partner to put out what's called the state of theology. And they put out these census and, and this, sort of, uh, this sort of polls, if you will, where people who identify either as non-Christian or Christian, many different things. And they felt these different questions about basic Bible doctrine. And if we were to ask it tonight, and I'm not going to do a show of hands or anything, because to be honest, it just might scare the, the pastor. But one of the questions is, is one sin bad enough to send someone to hell is one sin bad enough for divine wrath and judgment now a vast majority of people who either claim to be christian or are just american in their thoughts or or, or uh you know where they're from or how they identify most people say well you know one's not that bad i mean maybe a little slap on the wrist but certainly not hell or divine wrath or judgment certainly not seventy thousand killed worth and this is because we don't have the right view of God or the right view of sin. If we understood God's holiness, we would understand that, as, as R.C. Sproul said, that one, one little sin is cosmic treason. The, the smallest of sin against a holy God, that's who it's against. And so what David does here is he does sin. He relies on his strength. Now, if you read through the context of this passage the chapters before, we find that they're, they're at war, they've got victories, and things are going well. And, and because of such, I believe that David here takes a little bit more into account of trusting in the physical. And this is our, our human nature. We trust in what we can see. We trust in what we can feel. We trust in what we can experience, not in what we know. Now, David is also the same one who, when he was just a, a little lad, if you will, runs in to give his brother some food and sees this giant who's defying the God of Israel and, and, and goes to bat for the Lord and says, I'm going to fight. And he says, but it's going to be the Lord's battle. It's going to be God who delivers you into my hands today. But yet, just a while later, after many victories and all that David has seen, he's willing to go, we got to make sure we got enough army because people are against us. We've got many enemies and all of these things. Now, when we look, though, at 1 Chronicles 21, verse number one, someone might say, well, Satan did this, so God should have punished him this harshly. Well, if we look over, uh, I'll turn there for you for just a, a moment. But Second, or, or eh, time, time, man. Second Samuel 24. 
tells us that the Lord moved David to census because his anger was kindled against the nation. Does the Bible contradict itself? No, absolutely not. The Bible does not contradict itself at all. Rather, what we find here is that the Lord, who is angry because of the sinfulness of men, allows as Satan attempts and brings about this, we forget that in the book of Job, what happens there? Does Satan talk first about the, ser- uh, the servant Job? It's rather, God looks at Satan who is presenting himself along with the demonic horde before him for census almost, if you will, and says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, I, I could, but if you take your hand off of him for just a, a minute, then I-, I could have my way. I'd have him deny you in a heartbeat if you just let me at him. What happens here is a humbling experience for David. I, I can't imagine losing seven people because of my sin, let alone 70,000. They die. And as a matter of fact, we find that David here, as we see in chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, in verse 13, he says, let me fall into God's hands because he's merciful, but let me not fall into the hand of man. I believe that's very telling for answering this question. What we see then is that God then brings about judgment even gives sort of the the punishment options, if you will. But God brings about this judgment, and he does so for a specific reason. Because where there is sin, sin must be dealt with. God is holy. Man is not. And any sin, regardless of how big or small in our eyes, is cosmic treason in the face of God. One ounce of sin cannot be tolerated. And I would say this as we push that a little bit further, if we understand all of who God is and how vile then sin is in the sight of God, then we would understand that there is no punishment that is too harsh for one sin. In our finite minds, in our flesh, let me ask you to try to put this in in perspective. If someone out here got pulled over in our parking lot for speeding, doing 45 and a 35, and they got sentenced to life in prison. Would y'all think that would be fair? Probably not in our standards, right? We're going, oh, come on. They were just going 10 over. Give them a ticket. Make them pay a fine or anything, right? Why? Because, you know, they're just going 10 over. Now, let's take this spiritually, though. We're not talking about going 10 over according to man's standards or idea about how fast one should be going. We're talking about going more than 10 over God's standards. And we're saying to God and who He is in our sin, what our sin does is our sin is so grievous, even the smallest little white lie or even taking a census in an improper way or with an improper heart. What it does is it says, God, you've said this, but I say this. And what is that at its very root? It is pride. It's the same thing that Satan did to Eve in the garden. What did God really say? Or if anything, you know God must be withholding from you, or it's not that bad of a deal. You know, it's, it's only but so bad. God will understand. What man does is tries to justify himself. David even had another one saying, hey, it's not a good idea. I don't know about this, right? It, it sounds nice, but let's just do what God says here. It also reminds us to return to the Scripture. If David wanted to take a census and was provoked to take a census, He had the tools and resources to go, well, if I need to take a census, let's turn back over here to the book of Numbers and I'll know exactly how to do this thing. It shows that we know what sin is, but we sin because we like to sin. 
Now, you and I as believers in Christ, thank God that we don't have to face that sort of divine wrath or eternal judgment from the Lord. Certainly, you and I will be facing judgment based upon our, our, our motives, our heart, and what we accomplish for the Lord. We'll receive reward, uh, and, and some will have wood, hay, and stubble, and all these things, that would, and we'll have crowns for the Lord to cast upon his feet. And so many great things about that, but to think about this, though, is that to understand this question, why was it so severe, think the question should be asked the opposite. And even further back, why was God so gracious? When we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and when we talk about the first sin and how they get kicked out of the garden, they are never allowed to return to the garden, and then an innocent animal has to die to clothe them. And we say, why did, I mean, all, all they did was eat one little fruit. All they did was just eat one. They just disobeyed one law, one rule, and it wasn't even, it didn't even seem that bad. Question is not why is God so severe, but why is God so gracious? Why was it not that 70,001 were killed? Why was it not that David faced the judgment and killed while everyone else survived? Why was it not that, I mean, a million other things. But what we find throughout every time of judgment that God is still yet gracious and merciful in it. And that there is no punishment too great for sin. But on the flip side of that coin, there is no sin that is so great that cannot be forgiven. Remember, after every sin that David ever committed, from adultery to murder to a wrong census and probably even saying bad words or many other things that David did that we don't have recorded. He was a sinner just like you and I, but yet he was still called a man after God's own heart. So what we find is that while there is... Uh, no sin that can be overlooked, or there is no punishment that is too severe against sin, we also find that there is no sin that is too great that God is not able to forgive. However, God will not overlook or bat an eye at sin. There must be a price and a cost. So to answer the question, in short, God's judgment here on David and the people is not so severe. Rather, it could be much worse. We have to get back to understanding all of who God is in His holiness and understanding how truly terrible sin is. Even one that we would go, well, it's not David's father. It wasn't that bad. We've got to go. Sin is sin. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. As a matter of fact, this is not just a one-time deal that God does something like this. God did this all throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament as well. People say, well, the, the God of the Old Testament was mean and wrathful and vengeful. How about... He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. If we remember correctly, in the book of Acts, there was a couple who didn't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so helping God, and they both dropped dead uh, one after the other and lying about it. Now, I think perhaps one thing that the church could use is a good one sinner dropping dead. <laughs> it sounds awful, doesn't it? Right? I'm tongue-in-cheek here. Right? I don't want none of you dropping dead on me because of sin. But you know something, we forget, though, how severe sin is. We forget how holy God is. And I think for most of us, we bat an eye at it and we justify it. And we say, well, what David did wasn't as bad as what so-and-so could have done or how it could have went. Sin is still sin. God is still God. We must understand those things. But even in the midst of sin, because God is God, he offers forgiveness and that someone like David, who still was full of sin at times, 
can be called a man after his own heart. Not because David was good, but because God was good. Right? Now turn back with me to Genesis chapter 4 for question number 3. Genesis chapter 4. Question number 3 is one that I think I've been asked a good 57,000 times. And I'll get asked that many more, hopefully not before the night's over, but I'm sure more throughout my ministry. But the question, question number three here tonight, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter four. Where did Cain get his wife? I already saw some people shaking heads as soon as I said Genesis chapter four. I already knew, yep, it's the Cain one. Yep, I asked it before, right? I haven't gotten asked that here, but it's a very common question. As a matter of fact, it is asked all the time. As a matter of fact, you've probably even asked as you're reading Genesis 4 and you go, all right, well, I saw Adam, I saw Eve, I saw Cain, I saw Abel, then Abel gets killed, so where's the wife, Where, where's all the, the women folk, has this happened, right, where'd they come from, all that stuff. Now, I do want to put a plug in here for just a, a quick moment, all right? If you want more questions answered about the book of Genesis, you should definitely come to our fascinating Bible study on Tuesday nights, midweek, where we're going verse by verse through the book of Genesis, all right? To those who come, amen? All right, the three of you are enjoying it. The rest of you just come anyways. You might get something out of it, but we're going through the book of Genesis. We're, we're into chapter two now, so we're going to be getting to some of these answers as we go along. And it helps to look at this in the whole grand scheme of things, all right? So tonight I'm going to try to do my best with, with answering this question. Where did Cain get his wife? First of all, let's, uh, let's read the passage at hand in verse uh, number 15. We're fast-forwarding through the whole killing part, right? Brother kills brother. The first murder, it's not good. He didn't even need a gun to do it, right? He, he, he kills out of hatred, out of a jealous and a, and a perverse heart, a sinful heart. Why? Because both of them, when they're born, Cain and Abel, are born sinners. You guessed it. Now, verse number 15 in chapter 4 it tells us, And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him uh, should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And the, unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Methusel, and Methusel begat Methuselel, and Methuselel begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah, and Ada bare Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all such as handled the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also uh, bare Tubalcain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubalcain was Nama. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, and hearken to my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said, uh, uh, for God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos, uh, and then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, there's a whole lot going on here in this passage. There's a, a long list. We've got some generations happening. We, we don't even just have 
uh, someone getting married, we've got one guy who's getting two wives, right? He said, well, why have one? I can have two. And this would go on and on and on. So, then we come to Seth. It says, men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And we're getting closer and closer to something. But I want to answer the direct question first before we get into the bigger picture of stuff as to why it's important and how to understand the rest of Genesis, really, and the rest of a lot of these genealogies throughout Scripture that we often either overlook or try to dodge or, or just skip over in some way. First of all, let's just rip the Band-Aid, all right? Where did Cain get his wife? You guys already know it. You just don't like it. <laughs> right? Cain would have married a sister, cousin, or niece. Why? Because if God made a whole other race of people, I believe he would have told us about them. But uh, elsewhere, we also find that there were no other people groups mentioned on earth besides those who came from Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, Adam and Eve, called, she's called the mother of all living people. That, that If they were alive, trace it all the way back. And this is why we say, too, and I would certainly make the argument that we don't have many races. There is one race. It's the human race. And we all trace back to Adam and Eve. And we've got different branches and places of which they have dispersed because of the sin curse, because of the flood, and ultimately because of the Tower of Babel. And we find, though, all three took place because of man's sin, which is dispersed and caused division amongst people. But if we were to really truly think about it, we all go back to Adam and Eve in some way, shape, or form. Now, Cain would have married a sister, cousin, or niece. Now you would say, why then aren't they mentioned? Why aren't they there? How do we know it was a, a cousin, sister, niece if they're not mentioned in the Bible? Where did they come from? Now let me ask you this. Does the Bible record every person that ever lived between the dawn of creation and all the way through the book of Revelation? Every single person? No. All right, thank you. E easy answer. No, it does not. And why is that? Because what we find here is the reason many in genealogies are not mentioned is because in the scripture does not give a directory of every person who ever lived, but it includes especially those in Genesis early on who would become a part of the righteous or faithful lineage. How do I know? Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The uh, fall of man has already taken place. God is now dealing with them. He has brought judgment upon the serpent in verse 14. And he says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. All the rest of Scripture, what we find is every non-believer is a part of the seed of the serpent. And every faithful believer, everyone who trusts the Lord and follows the Lord or calls upon his name, is a part of the righteous lineage now ultimately that righteous lineage points to something greater than those who would trust in the lord but it points to the lord himself who would put on flesh and be the promised seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent now these genealogies especially throughout genesis are serving as a purpose not to list every person that is in existence but rather to show us where it's all going to because as you move forward the rest of chapter four and throughout chapter five you know what it is genealogy that's why genealogies are actually very important because they tell us where they come from, how they got there, but ultimately where and who they're pointing to, which is Christ. As we read throughout chapter 5, verse 1, 1 starts off, This is the book of generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name 
Seth, in the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. He begat sons and daughters, and he lived 800 years after having Seth. So, we get a lot here. And this is what we've got to understand. In Genesis, they're very shortly removed from the fall of man. They're living in the hundreds of years old, not in the uh, really old of a hundred years, right? They're talking hundreds of years old. Now, your body and my body stops growing at a certain point, and we stop reproducing at a certain point as well, at least biologically speaking. God is able to do great things. He does so later on in Genesis with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what we see, though, is that they're living longer. They're having, a, I believe, a much better body in existence because sin has only been in existence but for a short period of time. Therefore, they can have a whole lot more babies. And there's, I would say there's babies everywhere. Because he says here, they have sons and daughters. Now, in order then to make more sons and daughters, what have to happen? Sons and daughters, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, right? And it sounds really gross to us. Why? Because what happens is later on, these things get outlawed, if you will. Christians who have a problem with this answer need to remember that Noah's grandchildren must have been mar- must have married brothers, sisters, or first cousins. There were no other people. Abraham married his half-sister, Genesis 20. Isaac married Rebekah, the daughter of his cousin Bethuel, Genesis 24. And Jacob married his cousins Leah and Rachel. Clearly the Bible does not forbid the marriage of close relatives until the time of Moses. Now, I wouldn't suggest it now, <laughs> all right? There's a reason why now. When we see these different things, and there's different opinions on thoughts of how far you've got to go out in the family tree before you can take her to the movies or not, but I want you to know that God establishes these things and they have to reproduce and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, and that's what they do. It's not until later when God gives the law to Moses that these things are strictly forbidden and outlawed and the way in which how many wives they are to have and how they are to treat their wives and who they are to even make their wives. Now, at the end here, my little plug-in. Come to Genesis study and you will find out these things in a better detail and bigger picture. All right. Now, question number four. This is the doozy. (laughs) Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Nobody's married to their cousin out there, are they? It got real quiet. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. We'll check the directory later. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 14 this evening. This is going to be our last question to get answered tonight. Verse number 34 and 35. I saved this one for last because I didn't know how far it would go or if there'd be rabbit trails or an uproar or tar and feather me or anything like that. All right. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35. You ready? Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. All right, y'all okay? All right, all right, don't shoot the messenger, all right? (laughs) All right, first of all, the question, as you can probably guess, in what situation is it biblically appropriate for a woman to speak? Can I have a lady stand up and answer? (laughs) Right, just one mess with you guys tonight. All right, let's let's, let's, uh, have some fun with these questions, all right? These are things that we ask and we wonder why. Because none of us were alive when Paul was writing these things. The culture and times look totally different. As a matter of fact, in the first century church, I do not believe that there's 
Sunday school, vacation Bible school. There's barely business meetings. There's elders, right, of the church, and there's pastors and deacons. And other than that, people are just going along, and, and there's couples who are married, and, and the husbands are also studying and knowing the scriptures so that way they can teach and shepherd their homes as they're called to do. And some 1,900 years later, we can't get a, a husband to pray for his wife or with his wife or have daily devotions with the kids at supper time because they're too busy going everywhere, and we wonder why we don't understand verses like this. Right, we're living in different times, but the message stays the same, but I want us to understand this, all right? Here's your answer. Context, context, and then context. That's right, you guessed it, all right? Context is absolutely key here. If we look at 1 Corinthians being written, broad spectrum here. He's addressing a church that was full of sin, full of disorder, full of all sorts of issues. Paul's instructing the Corinthian church on how to operate. They were full of all sorts of issues. Matter of fact, he says there's some issues in here that he's like, I, I can't even imagine that you're even doing this is how bad it is. Now, the great thing is the next chapter, you know what he does? The answer for all those issues is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, which also you are saved. If you keep in memory that what I preach unto you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Praise the Lord. Every situation and circumstance and sin that was in the church in, in Corinth, you know what the answer was? The gospel. You know what the answer still is today for all those sins and circumstances and situations in the church? The gospel. That's what we need. Now, as we look at this context, even more specifically, chapter 14 is dealing with uh, prophecy, prophesying, the gift of tongues, and the preaching and edification in the church, the way church order and service is supposed to function and operate. Paul's already addressed the issue of gifts, praying and preaching and all these things in the local church and how they are to operate. Now, when we look at this passage specifically, it's specifically dealing with prophesying or the speaking in tongues to prophesy, to read, interpret, and preach the scriptures. This is solely the job of a qualified elder bishop pastor, all right? Put the three together. They must be qualified, and yes, they must be male in order to do so in the Scripture. And this goes back even further. Come to Genesis study because you'll learn it starts with Adam. It's Adam who was the under-shepherd of his home. It's Adam who was the one to shepherd his family and to nurture his wife and to teach the children to, to follow and to know God. The same as it has been with every man, husband, father in all of human history. But we skip over that part. We've changed what the Bible intended for us to do and we've made it. Well, look, I go out, I work, so therefore I want to come home to a, a home-cooked meal, a clean house, and you, know, you take care of the kids. As long as they're not in my business or in my stuff, then we're, we're good to go. That's not being a godly man. However, also being a godly woman is not saying, well, since the men won't do it, I'll just do it. I'll be the man. You know what? Here's the issue, because both of those things happen, don't they? So what do we find? The hope is found in the gospel. If we get that right, we get everything else right. Men, be men. Because a woman can't be a man like you can be a man, because they can never be a man. Women, be women to the glory of God. Why? Because no matter what, a man cannot do and be a woman. We have to understand these things. They're very basic in understanding. But the issue is that in our personal choice and preference and our own emotions sake, and we look at our own culture and the way everything has shifted, 
Mind you, this culture has shifted in the past 80 years. This is still very new. For a very long time, things went a certain way. And most of y'all could probably remember how they used to go. So we're living in totally different times now. But here, what he's dealing with is with the church service and the preaching, prophesying. It says, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. The passage is simply saying here, it's very basic meaning, that women are, first of all, not to preach or interpret when the qualified men or elders are doing so. It is not their job. And I also believe, too, that the Apostle Paul, throughout the uh, distinguishing of what it means to be a pastor or an elder of a church, would also show that those men who think they are qualified but are not qualified should also do the same thing. If you're not qualified, you're, you're not qualified. And this is not to puff up the preacher or the pastor or the elder of the church, but rather just to bring about order. It is to ordain what God has ordained to show that this is how God intended for it to be. Second, it is to show that they, it's to first of all show that they are not called to preach. They're not called to do the prophesying, the interpreting for them. That is the silence of which they are to deal with. Because earlier on, he talks about if someone is speaking in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, and, or most by three, that by course, let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. But the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. And then that's when he dresses, let your women keep silence as well in the churches. What he's doing is he's bringing about order in the church services, in the church gatherings, and to bring about order in the local church as it should be. We're not called to have free-for-alls like many of the charismatic churches would, would claim to have and say, well, it's a spirit made me do this. It, it might be a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will not do or lead you to anything outside or contrary to the Scripture. Now, the other portion of this that gets a little confusing for some is, says here, for it is a, uh, verse number 35, and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. This does a couple of things. One, to ask the men of their home, uh, it is to the idea of you're accountable to your husband, and husbands, you're also accountable to your wives. So husbands, fathers, know the Bible. Be prepared to teach your children, and you should be, and should be able to answer their questions, and, and to help your wives in, in understanding, and your children understanding what the Word of God says. It's your personal responsibility and calling, and it's a high calling. It also means, as well, though, the question of what happens if they're not married or if they're widowed. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's giving a blanket general statement for how things are to operate in the local church, and he says to ask their husbands at home, what if they don't have a husband? I believe the answer is found throughout other portions of Scripture that deal with this sort of thing, that they are to go to the godly influence of man in their life to, to help with this sort of thing and not to disrupt the church service to try to interpret something or to preach something or prophesy something or to put forth their own idea. 
Now, obviously, he's dealing with the women here in this stance because it was the man who God called's job who was qualified according to the Scripture to preach and teach the Scripture. It was the husband's then job to be able to understand the Scripture, to be able to shepherd his wife and his children. And so, everything, what we find in this passage specifically, is the goal is to be done decently and in order in the church service. So it brings us to the question that I know everyone is dying to know. What then can women do in the church? Not this. <laughs> not preach. And, and that's made very clear throughout, not just here, but throughout. Well, first of all, I answer the question, what can women do in the church? First, is not to usurp the authority over a qualified man who God has called elder, deacon, etc. But I believe the same is true for every man who is not in that office as well. We have to understand this. this. is not put the preacher on some platform where he's perfect because he's not God. I am not. But there are those who are qualified to be pastors, and then there are those who are not. And there are even some who I would say aren't even qualified to be a Sunday school teacher because they don't know the Lord or they have false this or, or they have a, a bad attitude or bad this or bad that. And there are some who truly just aren't qualified. We have to understand that the Bible does not give us a lot of black and white for the way that we do church in today's world. Nor in the Scripture do we say... Here's how you pick your Sunday school director and teachers. Here's how you do children's church and nursery. Why? Because we don't find these things in Scripture, do we? We've not added necessarily to the Scriptures, but as our culture and society has changed, we've done these different ministries and aspects of our church, and we've added these things, and we have to go the best biblical answer and standard as possible. We have overcomplicated church. We've overcomplicated the Scripture. We have overcomplicated everything for the sake of being busy and uh, giving the appearance at least that we've got a lot going on. But the greatest thing that we can have going on is just getting to the root of understanding and preaching and conforming to the Scripture. Second, though, what can women do in the church? Second, if married, submit to their godly husband and be their helpmeet. I believe that is perhaps one of the greatest callings in all of the Bible and in all of human history. Why? Because it's one of the first callings that we have in the Scripture. God commands Adam and gives him his role. And he makes Eve and gives her role. That's given by God directly for the woman. It is not some lowly thing as many modern day uh, political and, and, and feminist leaders would tell you that it's not a bad thing to be a stay-at-home mom who takes care of her home and family and teaches her children. In fact, that's a scriptural thing. It's a blessed thing. You're not oppressed because you're married and you love your husband and he loves you and you serve the Lord together. It's not oppression. That's living to the glory of God as he set forth in the scripture. It's a beautiful thing to have a home that operates and functions because to be honest, most of our homes in today's society don't operate as the scripture teaches. Third, I would say this. What can women do in the church? This is the answer. Right? Third is to teach the younger ones, especially the women, by their example in teaching. Two places I would turn to tonight, but just for reference, I'll give them to you, and you can study them. Titus chapter 2 gives us very specific details of what older men and older women are to do in the church, and that is to teach the younger ones. If you're going to teach the younger ones, that means you first must be conformed to the Scripture and the image of Christ first, before you have any business teaching anyone else. You must be qualified, meaning you must be born again and growing and not a novice, if you will, in 
following the Lord in order for you to teach other young ladies how to do the same. Teach them what it means to be a godly mother or a godly wife or godly mother or or even a, a godly widow or even a godly single woman. What it means to to love the Lord and to follow him as that means as a woman, which, by the way, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. The same way as a woman doesn't know what it's like to be a man. We are both human beings, but operate in many different facets and ways. I don't have to understand everything about you or try to do everything the way you do and vice versa. Be who God has called you to be and made you to be for his glory. We also find in Acts 16 of Lydia, who is there having a Bible study with these younger ladies, and, and praise the Lord, she gets born again because of, the, of what the power of the gospel does there in that moment. But teach these younger ladies. If you're expecting a younger lady in church to come to you and say, will you teach me? Then you're going to keep waiting for a very long time. What would be absolutely wonderful is to see the older generation go, you know what, I've walked where you've walked, but you're walking in a different world than I walked in, but I want to understand you better, and I want to help you to be prepared for the world that you're going to live in because I'm not going to be here forever. And I've got a lot of wisdom, not because I'm prideful, but rather because I've earned these gray hairs and I've earned these wrinkles and, 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 and uh, the, these medications that I take. Why? Because I've followed the Lord all these years. And I want to teach you to do the same thing. What we need to do is to learn, those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time, is to teach that next generation. And what we have is a couple of generations who never got taught but they've gotten all the blame. So we bring it back to this. What can a woman do? Believe the same thing that your average non-pastoral, non-deacon man should do as well. Teach the younger generation. Know God for your good and His glory and teach them. Now remember too that when we come to passages like this, to know the context. Know what God is saying. Know why God is saying it. And to also be able to understand that while we are living in different days where we are far removed from these customs and cultures of the Bible, yet the truth remains the same. I wish I could answer everyone's question perfectly and satisfactorily and completely in every which way and to give perfect little succinct answers for every little question. But the great truth is this, that there is still yet much mystery about the Scripture, much mystery about who God is. I love that mystery. Because it means that I'm not God and that he is and that he's worth trusting. And that one day our faith will be made sight. I hope tonight's maybe to answer a question for you or cleared something up. Maybe not made you too mad or anything. But I hope it's made you, if anything, curious about the Bible. Curious enough to read it. Curious enough to study it. Curious enough to even ask questions and want to know the answers. Praise the Lord that we have a God who gives us what he's designed for us to know and reveal and that we can keep digging and digging and digging in this book and we'll never reach the bottom. Our God is good. Our God is holy. Our God is worthy. May we choose, male or female, young or old, to know God and grow in God each and every day through his precious word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you that we can study your word, some of these difficult passages that we often struggle with and questions that we have. Lord, we believe firmly that you've created us with minds that are constantly wandering and even oftentimes, unfortunately, wandering, though, because of our sin nature. Help us, though, to be inquisitive of your scripture, to want to know you more, Lord, to not just want to know facts or have our questions answered, but ultimately that the greatest need 
is that we would know you more and have that desire in our heart. I pray that you would help us as we go from this place, use us throughout this week, we would be guided and led by you and strengthened by you. And Lord, we love you and we thank you once more for this time and for this day of worship that we've had in your house and be filled by your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being with us tonight. We'll see you all Tuesday night. Remember, if you've got a Bible question,